History is the most important subject that you can study. And if you can't see what's happening in the past, you can't look nearly as far in the future. Okay, Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Men will still say, this would have fighting power. This is Rewind Repeat, a history podcast. What you're about to hear is part three of a multi-part series on the making of Europe. This episode continues to cover the establishment of the Catholic Church in the Roman Empire. It'll be easier to understand and follow if you do have the chance to listen to episodes one and two. But if not, it'll still make sense. Now, for Charlemagne, the forging of Europe, part three. As the sole emperor, Constantine faces the same issues Diocletian did before him. How is a person supposed to unify the empire? How can he keep it together? Remember, the whole battle arena where we saw six emperors fight to the death for control of the empire was the result of Diocletian's system. It was stemming from his answer to this problem that the emperors needed to solve. It was a tetrarch, not based on heredity, with all the emperors married into each other. And Constantine lived its failure firsthand. And now he's in charge and he faces the same problem. How is he going to keep this empire stable and unified? And he has a different plan, Diocletian, a new plan. One that would bring stability so that he could keep control of the empire. One that would bring a new ideology, a new unifying force. It would take time. It would take years. But he would set it on its path. And Constantine, just like Diocletian, will have to decide what liberties will he take away to keep unified control over his territory. Constantine, is going to enter into a relationship with an institution that's been growing in power and by partnering with it, build a new pillar of the Roman Empire. That institution is the Catholic Church. And his decision is one of the greatest turning points in man's history. It's why the West is Christian today. In these series of decisions, Constantine changes the Roman Empire And the identity of Western civilization that we have today ties back to those decisions he made. And it's an interesting debate, really, to figure out were these decisions because he was sincere in his belief or was it all political? And if you were to take a sheet of paper out, write down the lists of reasons for these decisions and divide them between sincere and political, you would find that it's hard to figure out. You could put on the political side that even though he claimed himself to be a Christian, he wasn't baptized yet. He was still basically a sun worshiper. But then on the sincere side, you could figure out that based on this time, a lot of Christians just behaved that way. Paul Johnson writes 
about this. He says about Constantine, quote, Constantine never abandoned sun worship and kept the sun on his coins. He made Sunday into a day of rest, closing the law courts, forbidding all work except agricultural labor. In his new city of Constantinople, he set up a statue of the sun god, end quote. So in one way, his behavior looks like every other person who sincerely believes he's Christian, but then he keeps his statue of the sun god in his city. Sincere or pure politics once again, check mark on both sides. And it isn't even Constantine that was still into sun worship. Most of the Catholic Church was still doing that, as Johnson points out. He even has a record there of a bishop admitting to a later emperor that he prayed secretly to the sun. And this is a bishop of the Catholic Church. And so, like I said, he looks sincere in one way, but another way it looks like he was just doing this for politics. But he did gain a powerful ally from it. Even though the Roman Empire had just been given a life extension by Diocletian, it still needed stability. And what better source of stability than the Catholic Church? That's because the Catholic Church was basically, in organization, a mere image of the Roman Empire. It was like a state within a state. Johnson writes, quote, Christianity had become in many striking ways a mere image of the empire itself. It was Catholic, universal, ecumenical, orderly, international, multiracial, and increasingly legalistic. It was administered by a professional class of literates, who in some ways functioned like bureaucrats and its bishops, like imperial governors, legates, or prefects, had wide discretionary powers to interpret the law. It was becoming the doppelganger of the empire, in attacking and weakening it, the empire was debilitating itself. For Christianity had become a secular as well as a spiritual phenomenon. It was a huge force for stability with its own traditions, property, interests, and hierarchy. The Catholic Church government was like a copy of the Roman government. Constantine saw it as a ready-made state religion, and he wasn't the only one. The Apostle John, we talked about this in the last episode, had been given some prophecies about the Catholic Church. He had seen the very start of its foundation there, this church starting to grow. In the book of Revelation, you have a prophecy of the Roman Empire, and it's symbolized by a beast, and it records that the Catholic Church, quote, deceives them that dwell on the earth, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image of the beast, which had a wound by a sword and did live, end quote. We'll talk more about the wound later, but the point is the Catholic Church made an image of the Roman Empire. It copied it. Herbert W. Armstrong writes, And who or what is the prophetic beast? This church government then, according to this historical authority, is in fact a model, a counterpart, an image of the beast, which is the Roman Empire government. End quote. All this is apparent to us today. It was apparent to Constantine at the time, and so he made an official alliance. And it's interesting to note that some historians think that this is actually big cause for the Roman Empire to fall. That's some historians' viewpoint. But for Constantine, who's living at this time, he sees it as important to stability and makes it a pillar of the empire. This was civilization changing. And it was the most dreadful and dangerous outcome for the true Christians. You see, championing so-called Christianity was not that simple. There were many different factions claiming to follow Christ. 
Remember, you had the true Christians, you had the Catholics who were following Simon Magus's teachings, and you had different other factions believing some different mixes of Eastern philosophy and what Christ taught. The Roman church was the biggest of these so-called Christian churches. It had the most bishops, it had the authority, the credibility there, and it had complete control of the history, like we covered. It had more property, it had more wealth, it was headquartered in Rome, it had the best connections, but it didn't have total dominance yet. Constantine's decision, though, puts the Catholic Church on the path to dominate. Constantine's decision makes him more secure in his throne. Christianity, with his favor, increases at a quickening pace. At the same time, it opens up the Catholic Church to greater corruption because Constantine is giving them tax breaks, he's giving them privileges, he's subsidizing certain things. So you have records now of bishops bribing their way. Johnson records how one bishop admitted it, saying, we have given bribes so we would be made bishops and exempt from civil duties. So these church jobs were well-paid, cushy jobs that people wanted. And if you're connected and you paid some money, you can get them. By allying himself with the Catholic Church, Constantine actually reverses the Edict of Milan. Remember that edict was a toleration of all religion. It was a liberal concept, but now toleration was over. Not for pagans, they were still tolerated, but for all non-Catholics. Think about that. There are so many different factions here. You had the true Christians keeping the Passover and the Sabbath. You had Catholics keeping Easter and Sunday. You had different teachings on the nature of Christ. A popular one coming up was from Dr. Arius, a Christian from the African city of Alexandria. He was showing how the Catholic doctrine of the Trinity was wrong, but then he introduced his own errors. So you have all of these factions, including the Catholics, you have the true Christians, they all faced Roman persecution up until the Edict of Milan. They were all there. They're facing it. They're all seen as the same by the pagans. And they faced all that torture and that death and that persecution. But that changed now. When Constantine gave state sanction to so-called Christianity, he could only give it to one faction and only one. And that faction was the Catholic Church. Previously victimized, begging for toleration, they would now be the victimizer, demanding a monopoly. That's how Johnson puts it. He writes, quote, The empire, as it became less liberal, had found it impossible not to persecute Christianity. Now, having accepted Christianity, it found it increasingly difficult not to persecute its enemies, internal and external. And this is where you see Constantine's decision might have actually been purely political. Johnson writes, quote, One of his main reasons for tolerating Christianity may have been that it gave himself and the state the opportunity to control the church's policy on orthodoxy and the treatment of heterodoxy. Of course, Constantine was not concerned with doctrinal truth. So far as was possible, he wanted the church to be universalist and inclusive, end quote. So at first, Constantine wanted everyone to be accepting and get along. He didn't realize there's so many factions about this. He even threatened a Catholic bishop with exile for not bringing everyone in his church there. He basically thought like a pagan. To pagan, 
Doctrinal differences were just points of discussions, but you know, it was not the same for so-called Christians and true Christians. There is also some split because of earlier persecution as well over how the so-called Christians and Christians dealt with the persecution. There was a problem in North Africa Constantine got involved with. The Catholic Church there was split on how the bishops and some of the lay members dealt with that state persecution. Remember, all across the empire, you had some collaborate, you had some flee, and you had some who held their ground and they died. When that persecution was lifted, there were some bitter people there. Why did some survive and collaborate when others chose death? Augustine records a Catholic under interrogation on this subject, and I thought it's kind of interesting to share. It says, quote, this is, this is actually coming from a guy facing a Catholic court about how he handled the persecution. Quote, Do you think I am frightened of you like the rest? What have you done? You were forced by the curator and the soldiers to give up the sacred books. How did you come to be set free by them? Unless you surrendered something or ordered it to be surrendered. They did not let you go by chance. Yes, I did kill. And I intend to kill those who act against me. So do not now provoke me to say anything more. You know that I interfere with nobody's affairs. End quote. That was in North Africa. And they had been trying to break away from the Roman Empire. Actually, in that crazy time period when there was six emperors, they actually did break away for a time. It took a while for them to get brought back in, but they were. And when they were brought back in, the North Africans, they wanted a different bishop, one who hadn't capitulated to the state. But that bishop refused to leave. The North Africans appealed to Constantine. Constantine says the bishop keeps his office. And so the North African clergy is horrified now. The Catholic Church is allied with Constantine. And now they're more even, just more energized to split with the Roman Empire. So Constantine had to deal with the fallout of his decision. By aligning the empire with the Catholic Church, any split in the Catholic Church was a rebellion against the empire. It was an affront to his power. Toleration of religion, it had to be reversed. And you can see Constantine's shift in his thinking on how he handled Dr. Arius. Dr. Arius, remember, he's teaching this popular teaching on the nature of God. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Catholics taught. But it was spreading. And there was a confrontation between Dr. Arius and the bishop in Alexandria. The bishop was Alexander. Convenient. (laughs) But it shows in this confrontation, Constantine was actually communicating to both of them. And you can see how he cares more about unity and not really so much about theology. He writes, and this is according to Eusebius, he writes to both of them, quote, I feel strongly that if I could induce men to unite on that subject, the conduct of public affairs would be considerably eased. But alas, there is no need to make these questions public. He goes on and writes, quote, These are silly actions worthy of inexperienced children and not of priests or of reasonable men, end quote. So Eusebius shows Constantine writing to both of them, trying to get them to reconcile, but the letter did nothing. His controversy just spreads more, mainly to the east. Dr. Arius' teachings are threatening the unity of the church now, so Constantine has to try a different approach. He summons all the bishops, 
to meet with him in 325 in Nicaea. We call it the Council of Nicaea. Over 300 of them attend, mostly from the east. The Pope was sick, but he did send some representatives. And the bishops, they meet in this hall of the imperial palace. Constantine presides over them. He's got the full display of imperial pomp and ceremony. He's in control of this council. He's looking to bring stability. Now, his goals may look moderate. He's wanting to avoid disunity. He's trying to come up with every of something everyone can agree on. But his methods, they're tyrannical. The main thing the council is known for is this debate over Arius' teachings. The council ruled against him. They established the Trinity. And they make a statement that everyone is supposed to sign, saying the Trinity is right, Dr. Arius is wrong. Dr. Arius, of course, refuses to sign it. Two bishops also refuse to sign it with him, and they were exiled for it. All of Arius's books and his teachings, they're called Arian teachings, they were to be burned, and those caught with them could be executed. So the council brings out unity with the threat of force. What's less known is that the council also settled other debates. Remember Polycarp and Polycrates? They were the members of the true church of God. They were meeting with Catholic leaders, trying to prevent the change from Passover observance to Easter worship. And they failed at that, but yet the debate continuing. And now the council settles that question. It makes Easter official. It makes it consistent on the calendar. Constantine to the council also makes Sunday a civil day of rest. Now even the pagans had a day off. And all of this was enforceable by the law. Here's what Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong writes in his book, Mystery of the Ages. Constantine was not yet a Christian, but as a political ruler, he assumed control. The council approved both the Easter Sunday doctrine and Trinity. Constantine, then civil ruler, made it a law, but he was not able to make it truth. End quote. So the Catholic doctrines of Trinity, Easter, and Sunday worship, and really all the Protestant churches that come out of the Catholic church that hold all those teachings like the Baptists, Lutherans, and Anglicans, all of them really. Those doctrines become official because of this council. No arguments, no debates. This is when it happens. And now they have the Catholic church has the might of the Roman empire to back it up. Paul Johnson writes, that the Roman Empire had become the enforcement agency of Christian orthodoxy. Most so-called Christians accepted the outcome of this council. Constantine put stability and unity first, and most of them fell in line. But when there was dissenters, he became ruthless. And for the Catholics, this was praiseworthy. They liked this. It was essential to them. But to everyone else, it actually amounted to a greater persecution than the Roman Empire had waged before when it was led by pagans. Do you see the irony in that? Greater persecution when the Catholics were in charge for Christians, the true Christians for sure, than when they were just pagan. Like I said, this is a turning point. And like so many of turning points in man's history, this one would spill blood too. Constantine held other councils. He passed down other edicts on dissent there. And you can see how he treats them. 
how he tries to get the church unified. Here's a quote from one. This is from Eusebius titled Constantine's Edict Against the Heretics. Quote, Forasmuch then, as it is no longer possible to bear with your pernicious errors, we give warning by this present statute that none of you henceforth presume to assemble yourselves together. We have directed accordingly that you be deprived of all the houses in which you are accustomed to hold your assemblies, and our care in this respect extends so far as to forbid the holding of your superstitious and senseless meetings, not in public merely, but in any private house or place whatsoever. And this is how Constantine ends the letter, quote, And in order that this remedy may be applied with effectual power, we have commanded, as before said, that you be positively deprived of every gathering point for your superstitious meetings. I mean all the houses of prayer, if such be worthy of the name which belongs to heretics, and that these be made over without delay to the Catholic Church, that any other places be confiscated to the public service, and no facility be left for any future gathering, in order that from this day forward none of your unlawful assemblies may presume to appear in any public or private place. Let this edict be made public. End quote. The Catholics loved this. Simon Magus's dream was finally realized. The Catholic Church is now the church in the Roman Empire, with growing political power and dominance over the true church of God and the so-called Christian churches that were left behind. From now on, Christianity would be Catholic. It's like the soda wars. Pepsi versus Coke, and when Coke won, pretty much everyone associates soda with Coke and Coke with soda. And that's the way it went down when Constantine made his decisions, and the Catholics once again loved it. Constantine was bringing order not just to the empire, but to the Catholic Church. And many people, including Eusebius, they saw this as a good thing. Division was being handled and disappearing. Paganism would disappear. But look at the cost. Durant summarizes this writing in his book, quote, The council signalized the conviction of the ecclesiastical majority that the organization and survival of the church required a certain fixity of doctrine, and in final effect, it achieved that practical unanimity of basic belief which gave the medieval church its Catholic name. At the same time, it marked the replacement of paganism with Christianity as the religious expression and support of the Roman Empire, and committed Constantine to a more definite alliance with Christianity than ever before. A new civilization, based on a new religion, would now rise over the ruins of an exhausted culture and a dying creed. The Middle Ages had begun. End quote. You know, we have another name for the Middle Ages. We call it the Dark Ages. By bringing order to his empire, Constantine launched the Catholic Church to unprecedented power and brought in a new era that would ultimately lead to stagnation of freedom and learning. And the true church would be almost totally lost to history. There's no more polycarps, no more polycrates. The debates are done. You can't debate when there's a death penalty hanging over you. It was tribulation for the true church of God. John records this in a prophecy in the book of Revelation, quote, quote, Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be you faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. End quote. The true church of God faced its greatest persecution yet, and it came from people claiming to follow 
Christ. The Catholic Church called for violence to solve their problems. Because the Catholic Church's use of violence in later history is so well known, like the Crusades, the Inquisition, its wars during the Protestant Reformation, it can be hard to understand just how big of a change this was at that time. This was the first time the Catholic Church could enforce its decrees with a threat of force. It didn't have its own troops. Instead, the state would do its bidding. It was a foreshadow of worse things to come. This was a huge change, and it was a foreshadow of things to come. Constantine laid the groundwork for the Catholic Church to grow in even greater power. It received privileges no other institutions did, and even with this minority, it could grow into a majority. And Constantine, while he was alive, was firmly in charge. He called the council, he moderated the decisions, he decided on the action. But this was based on his personal power and prestige, and not many emperors after him could corral the church like he could. Constantine, when faced with the choice of unity through tyranny, or division through liberty, chose tyranny, just like Diocletian did earlier. After this council, he goes on to enjoy the spoils of the empire he won. He builds a new capital, so Rome is still waning, but the Catholic Church was steadily growing. In 337, in his 30th year of reign, he's 64, near death, Constantine finally asks to be baptized as a Christian. So this is when he's finally baptized. Another decision here makes it hard to know how sincere he was. But maybe he was sincere. Maybe he was wanted to make absolutely sure that his sins were forgiven right before he died. He knew he had a lot to be forgiven of. Either way, he allied the Roman Empire with the church. And once that decision was made, it was pretty much impossible to undo. And there was an emperor who tried later on, but it was not successful. The Catholic Church was there. It was growing. It was incorporated into the state now. It was a turning point. And regardless of the growth of Christianity as a trend, Constantine was the one that made the decision, and he chose how to carry out the alliance. And even with that persecution, he's still held as a great emperor. As Durant says, the empire lived on because of Diocletian and Constantine. When it lived on, he's saying only about the eastern part of the empire. We later call it the Byzantine Empire. The western empire did live on, but not for that long. Here's how Durant puts Constantine's reign as, quote, He was a masterly general. A remarkable administrator, a superlative statesman. He inherited and completed the restorative work of Diocletian. Through them, the empire lived 1,150 years more. He continued the monarchical forms of Aurelian and Diocletian, partly out of ambition and vanity, partly no doubt, because he believed that absolute rule was demanded by the chaos of times. End quote. That rule, the absolute rule, does have a dark side, though. And that's something we have to keep in mind. It relates back to what we were saying about Charlemagne in the first episode. Durant continues, quote, His Christianity, beginning his policy, appears to have graduated into sincere conviction. He became the most persistent preacher in his realm, 
persecuted heretics faithfully and took God into partnership at every step. Wiser than Diocletian, he gave new life to an aging empire by associating it with a young religion, a vigorous organization, a fresh morality. By his aid, Christianity became a state as well as a church in the mold for 14 centuries of European life and thought. Perhaps if we accept Augustus, the grateful church was right in naming him the greatest of emperors, end quote. So Catholicism became a state. It was a state controlled by Constantine at the time, but this state never intended to be totally dependent on the empire or even just a subset of the empire. The Catholic Church wanted to become a fully independent state, ruling the empire above all other states. And we'll see in the future, it did achieve that. And it would last longer than the Roman Empire. It would dominate future revivals of the Roman Empire. And this state would persecute its enemies with bloody enthusiasm. It wasn't too much later, in 390, that a Roman emperor, Theodosius, massacred a stadium of people, 7,000 men, women, and children. And you can see how the Catholic Church's power was increasing. This massacre happened in Thessalonica and was a retaliation for the city killing the imperial governor. The city's people tore his body to pieces and paraded through the streets. So the emperor responded with even greater brutality. He needed to stamp out the rebellion. But what he did shocked the Roman world, so much so even the church refused to deal with the emperor until he atoned for his act. Now Theodosius at first refused to lower the prestige of his office to be publicly humiliated, but the Catholic church would not back down. And eventually the emperor stripped himself of all his insignia entered the cathedral in Milan as a humble penitent, begging forgiveness. The church triumphed over the emperor. It was a historic victory. And like I said, it shows the growing power of the Catholic church, who just a short while ago was controlled by Constantine, but now was able to publicly humiliate an emperor. Interestingly, Theodosius was also the last emperor to rule the United Roman Empire until we see it with Justinian. He died in 395. Empire gets split with his sons. Seems to be the usual thing. That's what Constantine did as well. But his children, Theodosius' children, were pretty young and were not up for the task. And so the collapse started happening in the West. Now, the Roman Empire, with that East-West personality split, you have to remember the East was far richer. It was tied into a robust trading system. It had a strong currency, and so it could afford to pay regular armies and hold on to its territory. But it was a different story in the West. It was up to basically the competency of the emperor there to keep it alive. Emperors like Theodosius were using mostly Germanic armies to defend the empire now, so... It was Germans defending Romans against other Germans. But after Theodosius, the empire stopped paying these Germanic allies. And so, any one of those tribes, once again, if you have an ambitious leader, a nice warlord, 
what's stopping him from carving out a piece of the empire. And you see that with tribes like the Goths. And they were also facing pressure from the Huns in the east as well. By this point, I know I've called them barbarians, but these Germanic tribes were civilized enough to admire Roman civilization. And in fact, when they were carving out their empires, they weren't trying to destroy it. They were trying to take over that Roman system. The fall of the Roman Empire covers a lot of time and is the subject of much debate. Questions like, how big of a fall was there? What caused the fall? Historians even wonder if the people living in the Roman Empire at the time would have recognized the fall for what it was at that date most widely recognized in 476 BC. The archaeological record, though, is clear that the living standards did drop, trade declined, and it was a brutal time to live in. Like I said, there's a lot of history on this, and I'm not going to get into that. For the purpose of this podcast, though, it's important to note that there were successive Germanic tribes that overran the Roman Empire. There was the Vandals in 455. There's Odokar next after that. Germanic warrior set himself up as king in Rome there. His kingdom was conquered by Theodoric and Ostrogoth, whose kingdom lasted until 554, when an eastern emperor, Justinian, came along and united east and west once again. That took Justinian 18 years of war, and it devastated Italy in the process. But by doing so, he restored the Roman Empire and did all of that with the help of the Catholic Church. Once again, you have this relationship between these two organisms feeding off each other to strengthen each other. Will Durant writes that the war in which Justinian united East and West ruined Italy. Rome itself was captured five times, besieged three times. The population was starved in that process. The city was looted. Its population fell from 1 million to 40,000. Half of that 40,000 was supported by the Catholic Church. Milan, that city of Roman government there, was destroyed. Much of its population wiped out at least one time there. Hundreds of towns. One region on the east coast of Italy saw 50,000 of its people die of starvation during those 18 years. You even see kind of a death blow to the Roman aristocracy. Shortly after that, you don't hear of the Roman Senate anymore. Gone are the great aqueducts, the baths, the statues. Rome was in ruins. But the church is still there. You know, Italy may not have been what it once was, but Rome was still an important symbolic symbol. It was important to everyone. And the Catholic church made sure that this symbol would endure. Now, this destruction of Italy and the overrunning by Germanic tribes was actually prophesied in the Bible. Once again, a vision given to Apostle John, and he records it in the book of Revelation, quote, A beast rose up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast, which I saw, was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat, and great authority. End quote. This beast with seven heads is the Roman Empire. 
as mentioned before, and existed in John's day. The ten horns are ten successive governments that come out of the Roman Empire ruling its territory. The vision continues, quote, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast, end quote. So the Roman Empire was wounded near to death. We saw that with the Germanic tribes taking over, but then it was healed by Justinian when he united east and west again. Here's what Herbert W. Armstrong writes in the different book, it's Who or What is the Prophetic Beast? He writes, quote, The Roman Empire in northern Africa was overrun by the Vandals, who sacked Rome in 455. Then in 476, Odokar set up his government at Rome called the Heruli. But it did not heal the deadly wound, for this was a government in Rome. It was not a Roman government, but one of foreign barbarians. Then there was the kingdom of the Ostrogoths, 493 to 554, another outside foreign people who ruled in the territory, but they were driven out of Italy and disappeared. End quote. That's the wound in that vision there. And it's healed. Those Germanic tribes were driven out by Justinian, who, by doing so, healed the wound and restored the empire. Now, Justinian was a man of great ambition and drive. It helped for him to be able to unite East and West by inheriting a full treasury, and he put that money to great work to achieve his aims. We don't have too much time to get into him, but it's another demonstration of remarkable things a person can do when they're driven with ambition and given the ability to act there. Armstrong continues, quote, In A.D. 554, Justinian, emperor of the East from Constantinople, set up his government through an imperial legate at Ravenna, Italy, and brought about what is known as the imperial restoration of the empire, end quote. So you have a new capital here in Italy. They moved the government from Milan to Ravenna. And it's important to note that while this is going on, the Catholic Church is actually becoming more integral to Europe. You see, while the Roman state was collapsing, while the Germanic tribes were overrunning it, the Catholic state, its institutions were actually replacing it. While the invading Germanic tribes were Aryan Christians, so considered by the Catholics as heretics, these tribes still kept the Catholic Church, for the most part, alone. They're able to work out some kind of relationship with them, even though from time to time, cities and churches would get destroyed. But the Germanic tribes worked with the Catholic Church. Paul Johnson writes in his book, quote, In the cities and towns, bishops provided the natural element of stability and local leadership. They were identified with conservation of the worthwhile past continuity and administration, and the Roman tradition of peace and order. These were attractive characteristics in Gothic eyes, too. Of course, there was some fighting. A number of Catholic Roman cities were even destroyed. But most cities survived, with the Catholic bishop as their chief inhabitant and decision-maker. He organized the defenses, ran the market economy, presided over justice, negotiated with other cities and rulers. Who were these bishops? They were, of course, chiefly members of the old Roman ruling class. Aristocratic, landowning, and official Roman families had been infiltrating the upper echelons of the church since the 4th century, perhaps even before. End quote. 
The Catholic Church is keeping the government order alive. Maybe not in name, but they're doing it in practice. And so the Germanic tribes kept the Catholic Church going as well. And while the Catholic Church's power was checked by them at the time, the influence was still there. In fact, even though they wouldn't have seen it at the time, for the Catholic Church, these invasions actually benefited. You see, the Germans, when they invaded, weakened the link between the Roman governments in the West and the East. And now that they broke that link with the East, I know Justinian restores it for a time, what that means is there's really no government that the Catholic Church has to submit to anymore. The Roman emperor in the East wasn't able to control them the way Constantine was able to. You can see the difference when you compare the bishop at Constantinople That bishop was firmly under the thumb of the Byzantine emperor. The church in the east pretty much was always a servant of the state. But in the Roman Catholic church in the west, they were able to be free from imperial control. They would be the ones that would come to dominate the state. And that was aided because the Germanic tribes came and broke down that system of government. That's all in the future, though. At the time, the Catholic Church's power is not the same when the Arians are in charge, but their prestige still rose, at least with the remnants of the Roman population in the empire, particularly in the West. Will Durant writes, quote, But the distance of the Eastern and the weaknesses of the Western rulers left the popes preeminent in Rome, and when, in the face of invasion, both Senate and Emperor fled and civil government collapsed, the popes stood unawed at their posts. Their prestige rapidly rose. The conversion of the Western barbarians immensely extended the authority and influence of the Roman See. End quote. This all ended up helping them. When the Vandals sacked Rome in 455, they actually left the Catholic basilicas of St. Peter and St. Paul and St. John intact. The refugees that managed to get there were kept alive. That made the Catholic Church look good. There's even a pope involved in the negotiations that prevented Attila the Hun from sacking Rome. We don't know exactly what went down, what was offered, but we know a pope was involved. Once again, the Catholic Church looks good. When Justinian comes and revives the Roman Empire, he allies himself with the Roman Catholic Church there, and once again, real power is returned to the Catholic Church. The Church had even and mirrored that east-west split as the Roman Empire. And as time went on, there's differences in the eastern churches and the western churches as different doctrines were taught and customs and traditions diverged. And now that Justinian had revived that Roman Empire, combining the east and west once again, he had to work to unify the church as well. And wouldn't you know, he did it by siding with the papacy. That was a good boon for the Catholic Church there. A lot of this was assisted through the power of law. In fact, really, Justinian is most remembered for the law codes he issued. Loosely, we call them the Code of Justinian, and in it was codified the Catholic Church's power. Durant writes about this, quote, 
It acknowledged the ecclesiastical leadership of the Roman church and ordered all Christian groups to submit to her authority, end quote. So he, so Justinian puts dominance by the Catholic church into the actual law. And this code became one of the cornerstones of essentially all future law codes of Europe. They all stem from the laws that he issued. And it's amazing to think that, that the Roman church's power is cemented in these law codes. And the reason for that, one big reason, is that it was the Roman Catholic church that wrote the law. Johnson writes, quote, We have seen then that in this episcopacy led by the senior bishop of Rome, Christianity possessed an effective institution whereby to transmit ideas and procedures from the Roman world to the new, evolving society of barbarian Europe. What, more precisely, were these ideas and procedures? The most important of them centered around the concept and application of law, end quote. So the Catholic Church was writing the laws, and by doing so, they were preserving many aspects of the Roman government and then transmitting them to these new Germanic overlords. And, of course, enshrining in those laws their dominance. Johnson continues, quote, Much of the first great collection of laws, the mid-5th century Theodosian Code, was of the Church's making. There was, of course, no distinction between secular and ecclesiastical law, and administering and transmitting the one, the church automatically made known the other, end quote. So for the Catholic Church, this was not separation of church and state. It was combination. They wrote the law, they put their doctrines in, and they enshrined their dominance in that way. They preserved Roman law there as well. I mean, really, I guess you could say it's like they had a chance to remake the Roman Empire in a Catholic image or through a Catholic filter. And that influence goes in deep into the Western civilization at its core. We talked about in the first episode how the Catholic Church was able to take power by controlling history. Now they're taking power by controlling law and the record of it. And as that previous quote showed, it wasn't even just with Justinian. It was with these emperors. And we'll see in the future that it was with the Germanic tribes as well. And the law is what Justinian was most known for. But really, what he should be better known for was an intense persecution of Catholic enemies. Just like Constantine, when he allied with the Roman church, Justinian, when he allied with the Roman church, persecuted those that opposed Catholic doctrines, including the true church of God. Justinian sided with the papacy all the time there. And so he renewed the persecution against heretics. And remember, a heretic at this point in time is anyone that is not in the mainstream Catholic belief system. The true Christians were lumped in there as well. They faced renewed violence. And you have some record of this from historians at the time. One of the most famous historians, scholars really, from the Byzantine uh, city here was Procopius, and he wrote in his Secret History, quote, There are in the whole Roman Empire many rejected doctrines of the Christians, which they are accustomed to call heresies. Those of the Montani, the Sabbatini, 
and all the others which are wont to cause the judgment of man to go astray. All these heretics he commanded to change the earlier beliefs, threatening many things in case of their disobedience, and in particular that it would be impossible for them in the future to hand down their property to their children or other relatives. And many straightway went everywhere from place to place and tried to compel such persons as they met to change from their ancestral faith. So then, while many were being destroyed by the soldiers and many even made away with themselves, thinking in their folly that they were doing a most righteous thing, and while the majority of them leaving their homelands went into exile, the Montani, whose homes were in Phrygia, shutting themselves up in their own sanctuaries, immediately set their churches on fire so that they were destroyed together with the buildings in senseless fashion. And consequently, the whole Roman Empire was filled with murder and with exiled men. End quote. So he's describing what Justinian was doing and the persecution, specifically focused on one faction of the Catholic Church here that burnt themselves to death. But you get the picture here that Justinian and the Catholic Church were able to execute their plan of unified Catholic religion on a much larger scale than Justinian could. Remember, in Justinian's time, the Catholic Church was a minority. Now the Catholic Church is well the official dominant religion. And you can see at this point the persecution, the violence, the deaths are far more numerous. That legacy of Justinian is not as well known, but it should be known. It really needs to be the legacy remembered because it's the legacy that the Bible records. The Bible has a lot to say about what Justinian did with the Catholic Church. In fact, Justinian's revival of the Roman Empire is actually an important beginning point. It's the first time you have a resurrection of the Roman Empire with the Catholic Church at the center of it all, dominating the affairs of the empire. You see this combination come up later over and over. Eventually, it gets the name Holy Roman Empire. At the time, of course, this was not seen as such. But when you look at the history and you look at the way the Bible describes it, you can call this the Holy Roman Empire 1.0, the first iteration of it. It's the same model that Charlemagne will follow later when he sets up his empire in Europe. And it's a model for so many that looks good. It brings unity, order, but it has that dark side, the violent persecution and war. This dark side is recorded in the Bible by John, once again, a vision that he was given by God in Revelation 13, quote, And I beheld another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him, and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. End quote. Here is a church that's both a religious and state government. It looks like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. It looks holy, but it's anything but. And it causes people to worship the Roman Empire. The church was an institution 
really that kept the Roman Empire alive when that collapsed in the West. It replaced the Roman Empire's function in many of those places. As we saw, the bishops were running the show. It passed down its laws. Here's how Paul Johnson writes about this fact. Quote, The West as a whole became an area of tribal settlement in which semi-barbarous kingdoms existed behind fluctuating frontiers. In these circumstances, the Western Church found itself the residual legatee of Roman culture and civilization, and the only channel by which it could be transmitted to the new societies and institutions of Europe. End quote. So Paul Johnson's basically saying the church carried the Roman civilization over. The Catholic bishops formed a bridge between the Roman world and the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. And when the Germanic tribes came in, he writes later that the Catholic Church was able to recreate the secular framework of the Roman Empire and of these kingdoms in its own Christian image, its own Catholic image. Even after Justinian, these Germanic people would aim to emulate the heritage of the Roman Empire. They'd aim for that glory. And that was because the Catholic Church was keeping that glory alive. And while it looks good that the Catholic Church was transferring some of these civilizing ideas of Rome, you have to remember it was done through war and persecution. It was done through tyranny. Now, John records another vision of this new system, this time of a woman who's riding a scarlet beast. That woman symbolizes the Catholic Church. The beast had seven heads, referring to seven successive governments that this Catholic Church would dominate. These governments would be revivals of the Roman Empire, like I said, what we call Holy Roman Empire, the first of which was Justinian's imperial restoration, and the second, which is Charlemagne's empire that we're going to talk about soon. And this vision is recorded in Revelation 17. Quote, So he carried me away in the spirit of the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. End quote. This is vivid imagery of what the legacy of this new church state system would be. Starting with Justinian, Each time this Holy Roman Empire would raise its head, it meant bloody persecution and violent wars. This is the Bible's view of it. Not the one you get in your history classes. Not the view of, oh, how good it looks. Now, the Holy Roman Empire 1.0 was short-lived and lasted only in Justinian's reign. He had spent all the money. His successors couldn't keep the East and West together. And they did what the emperors before Justinian mostly did. They focused on keeping their eastern part together, the richer part, and they let the Germanic tribes do what they wanted in Europe. And it's not like they could stop them anyway. And so the Roman Catholic Church is in trouble again. You have Aryan tribes invading in Europe, 
and there's one particular tribe, the Lombards, that moved into northern Italy and were, were threatening the power of the Catholic Church. See, at this point, the Catholic Church owned a lot of property in Italy, and they didn't want to lose any of it. But without an army, the Catholic Church needed a protector. Even though it was legally and ceremonially still tied to the East and that emperor for its protection, there wasn't any help coming anymore. And so the church looked elsewhere. They looked north to a Germanic tribe that united most of what was called Gaul and had the power to protect the church. More importantly, it was a non-Aryan Germanic tribe. Therefore, it was the Catholic Church's only option to turn to. They were the Franks. And by partnering with them, the Roman Empire would rise once again, this time in the heart of Europe, where a new church-state combine would shape Europe's culture and identity to this day. The woman would once again ride the beast. This episode covers a lot of information, and it's built primarily off the works of Herbert W. Armstrong and Gerald Fleury. You can go to the show notes to find the books, and those are going to be the ones that talk to you about Bible prophecy and the true meaning of the church-state relationship and the legacy that needs to be remembered. Not the one you get in history books or in your history classes, but the one you get from the Bible. Once again, check the show notes. You can order them for free, and I highly recommend you do. Rewind Repeat, a history podcast, airs on kpcg.fm 101.3 as part of the Trumpet Radio. You can find this show and all the other shows on the Trumpet Radio on the trumpet.com or on kpcg.fm.